Welcome to this week's episode of the Faith Borker Podcast. This week's episode is part one of a discussion between Pastor Les and Dr. Micah Green, a professor of chemical engineering at Texas A&M University. Dr. Green is a native of Borger, and he joined us a few weeks back at Faith for our Firm Foundation Sunday. We'll be bringing you more content from that weekend on this podcast in the future. But in this episode, Pastor Les and Micah sit down to discuss Micah's faith journey and what helped him solidify his Christian faith. Here's Pastor Les and Dr. Green. Hey, uh, welcome everybody to the uh, Faith Borger Podcast. Really excited that you joined in. And man, we are so excited today. We have a really, really special guest. Uh, we have Dr. Micah Green. Uh, Dr. Green is a professor of chemical engineering at Texas A&M University. Uh, used to be at Texas Tech University, but you know, went to the dark side, went over to Texas A&M. Uh, what's so great about Micah is that I've known him for a long, long time. And uh, Micah grew up here in Borger. And uh, after he left Borger, uh, went on to Texas Tech University, and then uh, from there uh, went to uh, earn a PhD in chemistry, chemical engineering, pardon me, from MIT, but while also attended Harvard Divinity School while he was there in Boston. So, Micah, thank you so much for being here today. It's great to have you. Thanks, Les. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, thank you. Well, hey, first thing I wanted to do today was, I, I think this is going to be so interesting to our folks because... Here you are, a, a young man raised in a small West Texas oil town, and then you had a chance to go to probably the most elite university uh, in America to finish your education. So I'd love for you just to kind of tell us your story, because if I, as I've heard you tell it before, you, you had some struggles with doubts about your faith, mm-hmm. and you've come to a place in your life, here you are, an adult, and uh, you have a real vital faith, you're a church leader. Uh, and you're a defender of Orthodox Christianity. So I just really love for you to just take your time and just in a real relaxed way, man, just tell us your story of how you came to reconcile these things and some of the doubts that you might have struggled with when you were in college, et cetera, et cetera. So sure. yeah, let us hear more about you. Thanks. Yeah. Like, as, as you said, I'm, I am a Borger native. My parents actually are both Borger natives as well. Oh, that's right. So we've been, yeah, we've been here for all, for a long time. And I grew up, my parents were strong believers. I was, if the church was open, we were there, you know, every, every, every week. Um, and uh, I can remember, uh, so t- we're recording this on uh, on my mom's birthday, and it's actually my spiritual birthday as well. In 1986, I, I at the age of seven, I prayed to receive Christ on this yeah. exact day that we're recording. Um, but when you're seven years old, like, it's not too dramatic of a conversion story. Jesus saved me from peanut butter and jelly and Kool-Aid, you know, like there's, so, so not that much changed, but it was a really emotional experience, that feeling of like, this is a decision. And I remember I, I cried a lot. My parents were very kind to me and very patient with me. So that was great. The next kind of big moment spiritually for me happened when I was probably 14 or 15. Um, There had been, this was, you know, uh, early to mid nineties. Yeah. There had been a big change in my church because of the promise keepers movement. There were a number of men in my church who basically publicly repented of passivity. And I remember as a young man thinking like, wow, something's happening here. And so I believe it was 1995, my father took me to the Promise Keepers rally in Denver, in the Broncos Stadium. I remember and that. Yes. And it was, you know, 70,000 men singing Holy, Holy, Holy. And I was like, well, this is amazing. And, <laughs> but we, we, we drove separately. So I got to spend some quality time with my dad, hear a little bit more of his story. Um, he had had a very dramatic conver- conversion experience when he was 18. So hearing about how God had changed his life was a big deal. Seeing a bunch of other men who were fully committed to the Lord was a big deal. And also that was around the same time my dad 
introduced me to the teaching of R.C. Sproul. And I'll never forget, we're driving through, you know, New Mexico somewhere, somewhere between here and Denver. And we're listening to R.C. Sproul talk about the life of Martin Luther. And I hadn't really thought about like, well, there's the end of the book of Acts and there's my birth. I hadn't really thought of that much about like <laughs> church history and the idea that my brothers and sisters in Christ who came before me made such a big impact. So the idea that Martin Luther's bravery yeah. in the midst of a really uncertain and hard time affects me today. I had never even thought about it. And that, so all of those things, right when, I, right when I was 15, really rewired my brain. It gave me a, a new vision for what it means to be a godly man. I gained a whole new appreciation and admiration for my dad. And um, yeah, it was, it was awesome. Not too long after that, uh, I think I met you, right? So it was really great to be under your tutelage. Um, since, I, since I have you here, I am going to tell a story uh, on you. Yeah. So I was also dating a young lady named Heather, who later became my wife. And uh, she, she, we didn't go to the same church, but we hung out a lot, obviously. And she came to church camp with us. And, you know, so this is my girlfriend. She came to church camp. And at the end of the week, you came, you, Les, came and said, Mike, I know Heather's a visitor to our church, but you've just done such a great job in making her feel welcome. I really appreciate, like, how kind and thoughtful you've been toward her. And I was like, ha, 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 ha. Thank you for that. Uh, less so there you go um uh, yeah exactly i was like okay hardy hard hard yeah um anyway i I went on uh, from border high and and went uh, to texas tech and at texas tech um you know we're in lubbock texas we're in the bible belt yeah but among the faculty among the faculty Mm. there were not that many believers and there were a lot of you could imagine people saying you know they get to college and they say like oh do i really believe this did i really own it for myself i felt like i had already had that moment but i remember being struck by just how devoid of faith academia seemed to be Mm. i also got to do some undergrad research i thought oh research is fun research is more just it's it's a fun way to go through your day and discovering new things yeah and so then someone told me about like how grad school worked and I, I said, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to go to graduate school. I want to get a PhD. I want to become a professor. And I want to be a missionary in academia. If I read this book from Randy Alcorn where he had talked about centers of influence like government, media, right. academia, Hollywood, these kind of places, journalism. And he said, Christians always complain that those places are devoid of Christians. And he yeah. said, why are we complaining? Maybe it's our fault. Yes. Maybe we've abandoned those places. And I thought like, oh, maybe he's right. So I made it my, my mission. I said, I'm going to go get a PhD and I'm going to go to academia. Yeah. So I went to MIT. Um, and as you said, MIT is a big, impressive place. Uh, once you get there, well, I, can just, I guess I'll just say this. The first week of classes, I was like, oh, no, they have let me in by mistake. <laughs> Turns out I'm secretly dumb. I wonder how long I can, I can keep this up before people find out that I'm stupid. <laughs> but then I kind of talked to some of my classmates, and they were like, man, I didn't understand what was going on at all there. And I was like, oh, oh, you too. Oh, and we realized we all felt dumb. So MIT is where you go to feel dumb. Right. And that feeling of like, I'm secretly a fake. It's so common among grad students. They have a name um, for it. They call it imposter syndrome. It's this yeah. feeling like you're a fake, and you keep it a secret because you're ashamed of it. And uh, it was such a jarring experience for me to realize like, oh, I was feeling like I was this fake and that no one else would, I didn't want anyone else to know what, my, what I was struggling with. I thought this, I think it extends into the faith space as well. Mm. That Christians are very prone to imposter syndrome. Everybody else seems super spiritual and everybody else yeah. has it all together, but I don't. I better, let, I better make sure no one finds out. And so yeah. uh, anyway, I think that that whole issue of imposter syndrome is, is ongoing. So anyway, mm. I calmed down academically, which yeah. was good. Um, but the other thing that happened that first year at MIT, I, I don't know what prompted it. I'll, I will say the 
cold, dark Boston winter did not help is um, I began to wonder, you know, I, I, I had been, I had been interested in apologetics making arguments. Why do we believe in God? Yeah. Why do we believe in Jesus? Right. I remember that. But then I first, I, I, then I really considered like, what if the materialists are right and the universe is just atoms and that's it? What if they're right? What does that mean? One of the things it would mean is the moment after you die, you would stop existing. Mm-hmm. Pow. In a snap, mm-hmm. you're gone. Yeah. And it's not like you're floating in blackness, bored or scared. You just straight up don't exist. Right. And uh, I don't know if you've ever really contemplated this before, but the first time you do, you will lose some sleep. It is very scary. (laughs) Yeah, the doctrine Um, of annihilation. Yes, exactly. The the, the idea of angst, existential angst. And uh, there's kind of a double whammy of like, oh, that's horrible. Oh, if that's true, there is nothing you can do about it. I mean, absolutely Mm. nothing you can do about it. And I had this feeling of like, oh man, I don't want that to be true. Oh no, I don't want that to be true. What if I believe in the things I believe in because I want them to be true? Oh, wow. I want to have an afterlife. So therefore I want to believe this. So I got really freaked out. I got way up in my head about like Mm -hmm. explaining away my own beliefs. There's all these reasons I would want to believe that Jesus loves me and that Jesus has redeemed me and that there is an afterlife. And I'm I'm guessing you're 21, 22 years old. Yep, 23 years old at that point. Probably the first time you've been far from home. Yep. 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 Did you feel like there might have been like an emotional component to some of that? Like, you know, yeah, I say solitude is bad. Okay. So if, yeah. If, yeah. the more the, the the more your your um like community helps you to to not be up in your own head and be able mm-hmm. to have a sounding board. So yes, solitude sir. is not is not mm-hmm. great. Um and so getting connected with Christian community at MIT and at at a church up there mm-hmm. was helpful. Um and the, there were several things that kind of finally pulled me out of that. Um, honestly, one was reading fiction. This will sound confusing, but I was really? I started reading a lot of Tolkien. Oh, and I remember thinking like the real world is kind of like this. It's a story. It's interesting. It's creative. If the world were just atoms and that that's it with nothing behind it, I think it would be a lot more gray and a lot more drab and a lot more boring. Mm. The the real world functions much more like a story with an author. Yeah. And so that was very helpful. I also just on the apologetic side finally started asking myself some good questions, which is like to explain away someone's beliefs by saying, oh, you just want to believe that. That takes no evidence and no work at all, mm, right? Any skeptic, any, any fool can be a skeptic, R.C. Sproul says. Yeah. So you actually have to, to, to marshal an actual argument as to why they believe what they believe is false before you can explain away their beliefs. Mm. The other thing that happened is I, I finally had the realization of if I am just a biochemical soup, if I'm just made of atoms and nothing else, then why am I listening to myself? Oh, wow. Right? Like, I'm not a rational thing. I don't even, if, uh, number one, I'm not <laughs> rational. Number two, I'm not even conscious. I'm just a biochemical soup, no different from a yeah. computer made of meat. But then I thought like, wait a minute, you know you're conscious. You're conscious right now, dummy. And then that was the, like, it almost <laughs> happened overnight where I thought like, if you pursue materialism, it will lead you to conclusions that you know are not true. And yeah. then I thought like, okay, good. I'm going to leave that behind. And I came out of that season and that was really helpful. Wow. That's, that's really fantastic. And so, like how long do you think that season lasted for mm, you? A good six months. Really? Yeah. That long. Goodness. Right. And, and I wish I could say this is all intellectual and rational, but the, the reality is we are affected. What we find plausible is affected by all kinds of factors, including our church home, how we're spending our time, mm. the amount of light there is outside. Yeah. You know, I mean, even yeah. things like that, like the, the world seemed a lot sunnier when it was literally sunnier yeah. in, in, in the Boston spring. Yeah. You know? Which I guess really kind of helps me understand why so many people struggled so much 
emotionally during COVID. Absolutely. Because, right. you know, there again, the environment shapes our thought life. And right. Yeah, yeah, one, one mistake I think I've made over the years is sometimes when I think about questions of apologetics and how do we argue for our faith, most of my arguments were for Vulcans. People with no emotions. They're just they're just rational, purely mm. rational, and I try to appeal to their intellect, and that's it. But real people are not like that. Mm. They are emotional, and what we find plausible is affected by what's going on in our lives, by our own ex- yeah. experiences with family, with church. All yeah. those things affect what we find plausible. Wow, that's fantastic. So, yeah. so then, let's carry on just kind of telling your story. So there yep. was that, that dark six months at MIT. Yep. You also made the choice to go to Harvard Divinity School while you're working on a chemical <laughs> yeah. engineering uh, doctorate at that, MIT. That was, it it kind of started as a lark. We, we had to do a minor in something other than chemical engineering. Yeah. And most people would cheat and do like, I'm doing a minor in applied math. And I'm like, that's the same thing you're already doing. Don't, you know. But then I found out you, that we could cross register between MIT and Harvard with ease. It was very easy. And I huh. said like, well, let's do something totally different. So I chose to do a minor in early Christian history at Harvard Divinity School. It was just a few classes. It was not a big deal. Right. And considering how much of my work day in, day out was engineering, Harvard felt like a break. Like, oh, this yeah. is fun. It's fun to go to this class. Yeah. Um, but I mean, Harvard's a pretty post-Christian, spiritually dead place. Harvard Divinity School is. Yeah, I'm sure. Most of yeah. my fellow students uh, didn't know their Bible, didn't believe in God. And I was like, what are y'all doing? And they were like, hey, engineer, you really know your Bible. And I was like, y'all need to, y'all need to brush up a little bit. What are you doing? And, and I kept wondering, like, why are, why are you here? Why are you getting this degree? Yeah. And they would all say the same thing. They all said, we admire the power of religion to affect social change. Wow. We admire someone like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I was like, right. But what made Martin Luther King Jr. who he was, was his belief in God. You don't get the social change without the belief in a God of justice. And I don't know. They just, they didn't see that. Um, That's amazing. So, that was rough. So, this is a little off topic, but so a student at Harvard Divinity School, what's their... What's their career path? Where, where are they headed to? What they, are they going to go do? Nobody knows. Okay. <laughs> yeah. There's no good answer to that question. Yeah. They'll, wow. be, in, they'll be in debt. Incredible. And so, uh, you, uh, you finish up at MIT, probably yeah. the world's only uh, chemical engineering and uh, church history major. <laughs> and yep. then uh, from there, I think, is that when you uh, went, in, went into academia at Texas Tech? Is yeah, that right? so I, I spent a couple of years at Rice as what's called a, uh, what's called a postdoc. A postdoc is kind of oh. like an apprentice professor. I see. And those two years at Rice were really sweet. And, and there, really? Were some, there were several faculty there who kind of took me under their wing and mentored me, and it was great. And then I moved to mm. Texas Tech in 2009, and it was great to teach at my alma mater. Um, I will warn you, academia itself is a little... Um, it's a little over the top, just in the sense that like, uh, it's very competitive. And so if you're trying to get an academic position or if you're trying to get tenure, you're competing with people who are willing to have a terrible work-life balance. Oh yeah. You know? And so it's like, well, I guess I have to have a terrible work-life balance too. And so that was hard for me to say, like, I am going to have a good balance, but still be competitive for funding and for publications and teaching and things like that. So, so that was hard, but, um, Things worked out really well. I got super involved with the church there in Lubbock. I became an elder there. And um, the Lord blessed me in my, in my research and in my funding. And uh, right around the time I went up for tenure, it's, it's quite common for people to move schools when they go up for tenure. Uh-huh. Tenure is a weird thing. It's, it's very weird. It's almost like 
uh, either we pick up your option in perpetuity or you're fired. Like those are the only two <laughs> options. And uh, it's not that they can't fire you. It's that like, uh, if you have tenure, it's kind of like you can't be laid off. Yeah. Uh, but the real test for tenure is do other schools wish they had hired you? And sure enough, a couple of other schools came, came knocking and um, it was hard for me to leave Texas Tech. I was very happy there, but the opportunity at A&M was kind of mm. too good to pass up. Yeah. It would put me closer to family and yeah. um, I just thought it was a, it was a good opportunity. I especially wanted to um, try to affect the real world a little bit more. Yes, sir. Um, there are a lot of faculty who can get grants and publish papers and kind of play the game, but their work never quite makes it out of the lab. And I really mm. wanted to get stuff out of the lab and affect industry. And I thought A&M was a good place to wow. do that from. And that's definitely been true. Yeah. So, what, yeah. I, what I love about this too, is it's, it's so easy to kind of just think about, you know, the, the, your career, your academic mm -hmm. career. But what I find so fascinating is that and again, this may be my misperception, but but here you are, a, a professor of chemical engineering. And when did you and Heather get married, by the way? 2005. I was a PhD student at the time. Okay, yeah. So yeah. you've married this uh, your, 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 high school your sweetheart. High yeah. school, yeah. hometown sweetheart. Yep. And you're having a family, having mm -hmm. uh, having more than one child, yep. you know, work-life balance issues going on there and uh, doing all that. And then you become uh, an elder, a leader in a, in a basically a new church, Redeemer Church of Lubbock. And, mm -hmm. yeah. and that thing just launched. And it's so great, too, that, you know, your life has had an effect on my kids' lives because mm -hmm. all of my mm -hmm. kids went to Redeemer Church and were yeah. deeply affected by Redeemer Church. So, you know, how, how did that come about for you? Like you, when you get out of... When you get out of uh, MIT and Harvard yeah. Divinity School and all the things you face there, yeah. then you're like, I'm going to be a church leader. Yeah, that's West a good Texas. question. Um, yeah. I mean, a lot of that really comes down to, to uh, one of my mentors, which is Dusty Thompson. Dusty is the lead pastor yeah. at Redeemer, has been for a long time. Dusty was a college pastor um, in Lubbock when I was a student. And so he took, um, he, he mentored me and uh, uh, kind of did the spiritual equivalent of slapping me on the shoulder and saying, I believe in you. You can do it. He has a real coach's <laughs> mentality and having an older guy say like, I believe in you, whatever you're selling, I'm investing in you. Like yeah. that really meant a lot to me. So when I came back to Lubbock and Dusty had started Redeemer, I was like, whatever's going on here, I want to be a part of it. Yeah. And, um, and I mean, to this day, a lot of West Texas has really been affected by that church. It's incredible. Um, yeah. You know, just the, the different church plants that have popped up and the number of young pastors who have been mentored by Dusty and affirmed by Dusty in the same way that he did for me. Yeah. Like if we just took a, like try to get all the guys in a room and say, all right, how many young leaders are where you are because you've been affirmed by Dusty Thompson? It would be a very big room. Right. So, right. Yeah. No doubt. No yeah. doubt. And so... You talked about work-life balance a mm -hmm. moment ago, and you know, and my sister, you know, was a counselor on a at a Division One university, and she she said it was one of the hardest things she's ever done in her life, uh, just because she said, uh, by and large, the professors at her university were just their lives were a mess. Yeah, you know, and she's trying to help them navigate through some really really hard life right struggles. Oh, I'm, I'll be honest, like when I talk to colleagues. It's hard to talk about spiritual things with your colleagues, especially since a lot of my colleagues are not from the U.S. Mm -hmm. So if I try to talk about religion, they say like, well, you're a Texan, you're a Christian, I am from India, I'm a Hindu, the end, you know, no more discussion. <laughs> um, so most of the actual real spiritual conversations have come about between my colleagues in academia more on topics of maybe work-life balance and the, the fact that we all have this propensity to make work an idol. Mm -hmm. So I'll just give you an example. Like every professor knows somebody who threw away their marriage in order to move mm -hmm. up a little higher on the, the academic ladder. I'll bet. Everybody knows who's someone who did that. We all know it's foolish. We all know it's foolish to make your goal in life that other people think you're smart. 
Mm-hmm. And yet we still do it. Yeah. And so even people who are not from a Christian background can look at that and say, why do we do this? That's an idol. Mm. And so most of the real like legitimate spiritual conversations I've had with my colleagues have been around that issue, which is everyone knows that pursuing human applause, other people thinking that you're awesome and you're smart and successful yeah. will never be, will never actually satisfy. And we all do it and we know that it won't satisfy. So what do we pursue instead? Yeah. And that's where Jesus comes in. Wow, that's so good. So what do you think for you personally kind of gave you, you might say, the the wisdom and or the strength to say, I'm not going to go down that path, but I'm going to go down the path of more like my mom and dad, where, hey, I'm going to I'm going to be a, a family man. I want to be a leader in my church. I'm going to be an elder in my church. You know, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to live that life. Yeah, I think through the years, um, anybody who's in academia always has that that lurking idol of like, you know, your idol is, is other people thinking that you're successful or smart. Mm. And I mean, this is a battle I have every day where you have to say no to that. Say, that's not satisfying. That's not what defines you. If um, what ultimately defines you is the fact that Jesus was willing to die for you, that Jesus loves you. That's what gives you meaning. That's what gives you mm. validity. And you don't have to prove yourself to anybody else. Mm. That's, I mean, that conversation happens all the time. And I appreciate the fact that like, we can talk about that pretty openly in academia. Like I tell my chemical engineering students right yeah. now, like I, w- this happened just a few weeks ago in class. We, the first day of class, I said, everybody repeat after me, you are not your resume. And they did. <laughs> and it's because nobody ever says out loud, you are your resume, but students are constantly getting that implicit mm. message mm. of you are your resume. And so I think it's the job of Christians to, to see the idols where they are and call them out. That's part of what it means to be salt and light in an mm. institution. Wow. Fantastic. Well, I kind of brings me to my next question, uh, and I appreciate that so, so much. So, those of us who have been sending our kids off to college the last few years, uh, there's a lot of angst about that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because we have this impression, and maybe it's a misperception, but that there just aren't <clears throat> very many people who have what I would call an orthodox Christian faith in academia. And that if you do have orthodox Christian beliefs, that uh, at the, at the very least, you'll be mocked and ridiculed for it. Hmm. Uh, is that perception a reality? Or is, is it really true that in academia, there is just, there's a hostility to Orthodox Christianity? Yeah, I, I guess I have to preface this by saying I'm, I am probably very spoiled in this regard. In chemical engineering, people are kind of like, does your stuff work? Okay, good for you. Like that's, <laughs> there's not a lot of ways for my faith to create hostility for me in, in regard to like how people assess my work. They like just look at my work and say, you know, it works, so therefore it's good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't encounter a lot of hostility in, in my circles. Um, I can tell you also, I, I have the privilege of being at Texas A&M, which is one of the more Christian-friendly universities I've ever really? seen. I've, yeah. uh, for a long time, been very involved with the Christian Faculty Network at A&M, oh, which wow. I think on our listserv, we have over 200 people. And mm-hmm. so there's lots and lots of believers among the faculty at A&M. But one thing you can do is you can go down the list. I actually have a list. I can look at you know people who are in the Christian Faculty Network by department, and you start realizing like, oh, not all departments are created equal in this regard. Oh, yeah. Yeah, if you're in engineering and you're a believer, that's okay. If you're in business and you're a believer, no problem, uh-huh. right? The longtime uh, dean of the business school, Eli Jones at AM is a strong believer, an amazing man, yeah. right? And so those are fields where it's like, if you know, your faith is not really an issue. But in other fields, you know, we, yeah. you and I talked about something like anthropology. The humanities. Uh, yeah, more in the humanities, it could be an issue. And so if you say there's not a lot of 
Christian professors. It may have been <clears throat> not that there could be Christian professors, but they weren't hired. It may have been that those students never went into those fields or never went to grad school in those fields and they were turned away. Like the pipeline stopped somewhere along the way. Uh-huh. And so it is tempting to be like, well, that's horrible. Um, what do we do about it? But there are certain areas where the tide has kind of turned. Um, the most prominent being philosophy. So uh, I don't remember where I heard this statistic, but someone had said like in the late 60s, if you say, what percent of PhD students are Christians in philosophy? And the answer is like, I don't know, one, right? It's low. Yeah. yeah. That number is a lot higher now. Oh, fantastic. And so why? Why is it higher? And it's because several Christians, notably Alvin Plantinga, who was at Notre Dame for a long time, yes, sir. did great work, including yeah. great work showing how yeah. the Christian faith is reasonable. Yeah from a philosophical standpoint and all the other philosophers are like, huh, I guess our assumption that this was not worth our time must've been incorrect. And so it almost like opened up philosophy as like, this is a place where Christians can be welcome. And so, I don't know, you almost have to say like Christians, if you, the more Christians that go into those areas, the more open it will be for more Christians to go into those areas. Yes, sir. And so that's, that's kind of the the view I have is we have to go in and be salt and light. Um, Oh, I can remember yeah. the first time I read a book by Dallas Willard that he's a mm-hmm. professor of philosophy at USC. At USC. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just remember being floored again because of my perception that there are so few Christians in academia, but right. particularly in the humanities, philosophy, right. and things like that. I, yeah. I do worry also that people maybe self censor themselves a lot more than they need to. They think, like, oh, I can't say anything. I can't go into that field. I can't do that yeah. because they're scared of what the consequences might be. Yeah. In reality, the legal protections for Christians in the workplace are stronger now than they were 30 years ago. Really? Legally, yes. I mean, the last, like, I think 15 religious liberty cases that have come up before the Supreme Court have all gone mm-hmm. the, in, in the favor of religious liberty. Oh, okay. So the legal protections are actually really good. I think what's changed in the last, you know, decade or so, that's kind of what you're referring to, is not the legal situation, but the cultural situation. Yes, sir. And a lot of that is not driven by the faculty. It's driven by students. Is that right? right? Students who are who are much quicker to say, um, you you will toe the party line or you will be persona non grata. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I can appreciate what you said a moment ago about you know when it comes to areas of you know business or engineering that you know Christians are welcome because it's all you know it's, it's purely merit. It's a meritocracy, right? Right, right, right. right. However, those of us who are parents, uh, we got to send our kids off to a school and they're going to have to take. A biology class. Yeah. They're going to have to take freshman biology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're going to have to take, uh, you know, uh, English literature yeah, yeah, yeah. and things like that. So, I, just from your vantage point as a, as a college professor, what, what kind of advice would you give to parents like to prepare your kids, even if they're going to be a business major, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to have to be in some of those classes. How do you kind of prepare your kids for that, that environment? Or you might, you might say also the social expectations. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think what jumps to my mind is there's kind of two different postures you can take toward the toward the outside world. One is combative, like this is an opponent, mm. I'm out to defeat them, mm. or I'm out to avoid their attacks, that kind of thing. Yes, sir. Um, I think it might be even better to have a tone of more quiet confidence. Mm. So let me give you an example. Yeah. So I'll I'll be super honest, right? What's the rage on college campuses these days? It's anything relating to social justice, right? Oh, and so yes, the, yeah. the your English class and your anthropology class and your philosophy class—that's all they talk about, right? <laughs> and uh, and so I know a lot of Christians, especially if they trend more conservative, are super annoyed at this. Yeah. Like, oh, how do we stop this? How do we not teach about this or not hear about it? But a, a confident posture that says, like, I'm not threatened by all your weird social justice stuff. A, a more confident posture would say, like. Interesting. 
so you're you're after justice. Why is that? Why yeah. why why is it that um, that that we think that that humanity needs to move towards a situation that's more just, that treats all people with dignity, that tries to create a society that doesn't denigrate people. Some mm-hmm. of like even if their methods are illiberal and wrong, a lot of the goals of social just the social justice movement, you can understand where they're coming mm-hmm. from. So if you say like let's find some common ground, but then figure out like where does this idea of human dignity and value come from? Mm-hmm. It can't come from science. It can't come from a materialistic world view of the, of the universe. That's right. In reality, this view of humans as valuable who have rights and deserve justice actually comes from Jesus. Oh man. And That's you awesome. use, mm-hmm. it's like, this is kind of the Tim Keller move. It's like the Judah move of you take what they're giving you and you say like, actually that should point you back toward Jesus. Yeah. So I think that's much more helpful than the oppositional, like, what are they teaching us? Like, instead of being angry all the time, you say, like, how do I turn this into an opportunity for the gospel? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's, that's so right. No, that's so fantastic. And I love what you said about the judo move. And you know, I think about the words of the Apostle Paul. You know, uh, I, I try to find common ground with everyone. Yeah. And yeah, we have right. to be doing that. But I love that. Yeah. Quiet confidence versus combativeness. That's right. so, so good. Yeah. I, I can understand why that's a little daunting as a parent because you're like, I'm not going in there myself. I'm sending my child in there. And so if, if I say, oh, send your child in to be salt and light, you're like, but that's my child. Yeah. What's going to happen to them? <laughs> but again, I think even our posture as parents matters. I told the story earlier today about, you know, when I had some concerns as a very young person, I was like eight years old and I was like, is this a contradiction in the Bible? And yeah. my dad, instead of like freaking out and saying, don't ask questions, he was, he said, you can ask any question you want. The Bible can take it. Yeah. And the confidence matters a lot. It says like, we don't have to be scared. We don't have to be worried. We're not coming from a position of weakness where our faith Amen. hangs by a string. You can say like, I've been through it all before. There's nothing you're going to say that's going to throw me off. I'm happy to have any discussion with anybody and walk into any college class and it's mm. okay. That's awesome. Thank you for joining us today on the Faith Border Podcast. We hope you've been inspired and encouraged in your relationship with Jesus. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider subscribing on Apple or Spotify podcasts. Leave us a review and share this episode on social media. Your support helps us continue spreading the extraordinary love of Jesus and his gospel to the world. To stay connected and explore more resources from Faith Covenant Church in Borger, Texas, visit our website at faithborger.com.